Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, let's go ahead and get started with our 12th and final week of our What is the Church class. I am, as I've said a couple of different times, uh, certainly delighted and honored that you guys have continued to come come to learn. And uh, it's been a joy for me, I want to say, in case I forget to say this at the end, no need to get super sentimental, but it's been, a super, it's been a deep joy for me to be able to come and share some of these thoughts and to dialogue with you some in here and have some of these conversations afterwards. And it's just such, a, such an interestingly important question together as the church and to ask the question, what is the church? So I have benefited from our time and I look forward to wrapping up today and hopefully tying at least a little bit of a bow on some of our discussions and then discussing where we might go from here. So I want you up front here, I'm going to pray in just a second, but uh, I want you here in a moment to just think back through some of the things we've talked about. I'm going to give you a second even to flip through your notebook if you want and to uh, go ahead and write down and, and share with me, at least a few of you, what's something you'd rather not forget. This is a thing I sometimes do with uh, book reports and different uh, classroom experiences with my students. And so I thought in this context, week 12 would be a good time to stop and ask ourselves, what are some, each of us individually, what are some things I've learned this semester in this uh, time together that uh, I'd rather not forget? So let me pray for us, give you some time to think through that, and then you can share as you think of them. Father God, we're grateful for the opportunity together. We do gather in the name of your son, and we're thankful to be gathered by your grace as manifested to us in him, and uh, we also gather as people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. We believe that uh, whether we feel it or not is pretty beside the point. We take it to be truth that you are with us in a way that may be difficult to explain perfectly, but nonetheless is something we uh, come to realize is, is um, very much real. And so we acknowledge your presence in the room. We ask that as always, you would uh, sharpen our minds to learn the things you'd want us to learn. Soften our hearts to hear what uh, we need to hear and just take in whatever content and truth you would desire so that we can continue to be faithful to you. So we're grateful for this entire semester and we're grateful for it tonight as we wrap things up. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, take a minute and think about it. What is something that you would rather not forget from our time together over the course of the last few months? Oh, good. How the church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Israel. Yeah, I remember in that whole first month, that just kept coming back up. And it was interesting to me, um, I didn't necessarily anticipate this to the degree that it happened. Each time we looked at the primary biblical metaphors for the church, people of God, body of Christ, temple of the Holy Spirit, you can't read more than a couple of texts that mention those things and see this idea that we are the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it was, a, it was a little, uh, I don't know, it wouldn't be a Freudian slip, but we're the fulfillment of Israel. The, for me, the two big ideas coming out of that first section were that and that we live under God's authority. With each of those pieces, you had this idea that the whole story has been leading. We're not a plan B, the church. 
this Jew plus Gentile family in Christ. No, this was the, this was the purpose all along of calling Abraham and, and saving Moses and so on and so forth. Good. What else? What are some other things? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I like the way you put that, that the church is within the world and yet without and holding up and pulling along. And, and um, one of the things that I was discussing with uh, some of my colleagues today is this biblical experience and then metaphor of exile where the, where the people of God find themselves in a strange and hostile land being a pretty appropriate metaphor for uh, our church and our world and increasingly so we think. And so just looking at what, how do you be the church in exile? And one of the tensions is what does it mean to resist someone for the sake of that person? you know, or to be against the world for the sake of that world. I like how you put it, within the world, but at the same time, without, and holding it up, pulling it along. Yeah, good. No, that's important. Those are good things. Good. A couple more. What else would you rather not forget that you've uh, thought about this semester? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's been pretty, probably one of the, I don't know how long it's been since I've been sort of learned that and thinking about it, but it's been a pretty dominant way of thinking about things for me. And let me kind of repeat things for the sake of those that may not have heard as well as the podcast. Uh, you mentioned generally the, the just remembering we, God, we, we are a people who do business with God. And so whatever else we say about ourselves, we have to start there. We're not just a club of people with similar interests or social similarities. We do what we do because of God. And it's just been funny how this, that, that idea of because God has become so central, even in the way in which, you know, a lot of the conversations I've been having with different leaders and pastors here, as well as, as you guys in this class and others just in conversation, this remembering. And I think, again, in, the, in a situation of exile, it's going to become more and more important for us to remember, oh, yeah, like we are doing this because God is a certain kind of way, because he is who he is. And then specifically, you mentioned the idea of the overlap of the ages, that we live in between the death and resurrection of Christ and the second coming so that the old world is still alive. We still in our own selves and in our own communities experience the effects of sin. We're not acting as if it's not real, but at the same time, we also experience new life in the midst of that in the transformation we know to be taking place within ourselves as well as the uh, relationships that we're forming in Christ. Um, yeah, that we... Uh, that we Broken, messed up, imperfect, we are nevertheless a sign and foretaste of things to come. It's a beautiful thought. It's a beautiful thought, uh, one that brings both opportunity and responsibility. 
Um, yeah, I appreciate that as well. Good. Let me go one more. One more thing. What's uh, something else that, uh, that you remember we've discussed that you don't want to forget? Good, okay. Yeah, when we talked about how, remember, what makes us us is the gospel. And the gospel is, is, is good news. And the good news is not just one facet or one dimension, but rather there's multiple facets. It's why we preach it again and again and again, because we're liable to forget any portion of it. And because even if we're remembering one portion of it, there's probably more of it that we're not thinking about. And even something as distinct as we tend to think, okay, yeah, maybe the gospel is, is uh, power for holiness and the gospel takes care of the guilt, shame issue. Slow down. Because yeah, those are two separate things. That the gospel takes care of the guilt issue. That I, as a matter of fact, am headed towards judgment. And it would be right for God to destroy me because I've looked at him and said, no, thank you, I'd rather do things my way. And that guilt piece is removed by the sacrifice, but also the cleansing of our shame. Not the sense that I've done wrong. That's the guilt piece. But the sense, yeah, that I am wrong. That at the deepest, at the deepest parts of me, and I mean, you think about, um, you think about, the prevalence of anxiety in our world. And, you know, they say that in any given moment, about 18% of us uh, are, are in, a, in a room of any size have pretty serious anxiety issues. And that on average, about 27 to 30% of us will at some point in our lives go through this. And certainly the Christmas season makes it worse. And there are a lot of reasons for this, but a lot of times the depth of anxiety that we experience comes from the fact that we're internalizing the world's brokenness and just thinking that we ourselves are just jacked up beyond all measure, that there's nothing that can put us back. I'm humpy, humpty dumpty and nothing can put me back together again. And the gospel comes in and speaks to that. Excellent. Good. Well, let me pick up um, with those things and talk about what I want to talk about tonight. Uh, my goal tonight is to um, teach for a little while and then to save some time at the end for one last opportunity for you to ask questions. Uh, no need for the text number. We know each other. Uh, if you you, if you don't want to talk to me, then I'm sure you could text it in and Brad will probably forward it to me. But uh, we'll open it up for some questions and answers about anything we've covered uh, towards the end. So uh, opening thoughts. Once more, let's remember where we've been. We have been following all semester long this simple formula that uh, is broken into three parts. The church is, and then the church does what it is, and the church organizes what it does. So the church is. We have to start by asking, who are we? Until we get our identity down, then we're not going to be able to get anywhere. And then we say, given who we are, what is it that we're doing in the world? And then given what we're doing in the world, how can we organize that in such a way that we do it well? So we, we discussed when we covered what the church is, the three primary biblical metaphors for the people of God, well, for the church. First one being the people of God. We are the nation of God. We are a people who belong to him, who worship him. Second one being we are the body of Christ. Third one being we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And for each of those, we probably looked at three to five sub-truths. I mean, we were just blasting ourselves with biblical truth about what the church is. And then at the end of that, we tried to pull together those things into one unified description. And what we came up with is that we as the church are a community of disciples rooted in the gospel and oriented to mission. So we're a community, a gathering, a people of those who are trying to follow Jesus with our lives. And we only do that as we root ourselves in this gospel that he saved us by grace through faith, not because of our own abilities, but because of his own mercy and love. And we are oriented to mission. We don't exist for the sake only of ourselves, but rather we exist to call others to this new life that we have received. 
And so that was our um, answer to the question, what is the church? Community of disciples who are rooted in the gospel and oriented to mission. And building on that, we discussed what does the church do? And we came up with three basic descriptions, three basic practices. We do a lot of things together, but all of them can be organized under one or more of these headings. We worship God. We are a people who fundamentally look to God and say, you are God. Um, I've been thinking about Psalm 63 ever since Mark's sermon this last week. And it starts with this exclamation that, oh God, you are my God. And we as the church begin to be the church when we say, oh God, you are our God and you are good. We worship God is the first thing we do in many different ways. Secondly, there's a, so that's the upward dimension. Then there's an inward dimension. We build one another up. I'm here to serve you. You're here to serve me. We're both here to give and to receive, both requiring unique forms of vulnerability. We build each other up. And then lastly, there's this outward dimension of we witness to the world. So those are our basic practices. But once you say that, then, I mean, it, I, have, I have a lot of, um, I mean, I got a lot of Bible college students who can tell you very clearly exactly what we do. But at their current development st- developmental stages, they have no idea how to turn that vision into an actual reality of a group of people doing that together in an organized way. And so we went on and said, okay, so those are the things we do. How does a local congregation organize themselves? And we first le- looked at the fact that the church is um, simultaneously gathered and scattered, that there's this rhythm to living the Christian life together, that we gather together in places such as this, and then we scatter back out into the world. And if you don't have both of those, then you have something less than a fully functional church. So as we organize our lives together, we tend to both. What we do here when we gather on Sundays, and in this case on a Wednesday, and then what we do with the rest of our hours of the week. We always are a part of the church, and so we recognize that this is a part of the organization of how the church should do life together. Then last week, in what I hope was as much of a blessing to you as it was to me, I got the opportunity, we got the opportunity to just invite some, some men and leaders much wiser than myself to come up here on stage and to share about what leadership looks like, generally speaking from the biblical standpoint, and also here specifically at Christ Church. And so we are a community that has leaders. And lastly now, we come to our third portion of this idea of how we organize our lives together, and we're going to be talking about membership. So in a way tonight, what we're going to do is wrap up by examining the relationship between the church and me, or for you, the church and you, the relationship between the church and the individual. And it's a little funny to even say it like that because, well, I have become a part of this we because we are, I am. And yet realistically, there is a relationship that each of us have as individuals to the church body as a whole. And so that's what we're going to be discussing today is what is the proper relationship between us as a group, and you and me as individuals. And in a word, under this heading of how the church organizes, we're discussing membership. Now, membership is a word that we all kind of know what it means, even if it uh, may be difficult to come up with a perfect definition. So here's one that isn't necessarily the only one, but I think it pretty well describes what you probably think when you, I say membership, and I just want you to know what I think when I say membership. A member is a person who officially belongs to a group. And then I put in parentheses, marked by covenant commitment. So a member is more than just an attender. An attender is somebody who shows up. A member is somebody who's officially part of the group. So if you think about this in terms of family, an attender is is the boyfriend. You know what I mean? A member is the son-in-law. 
So when we cross this threshold from being just sort of a guest, visitor, attender, to being fully a part of what's going on, that's what we mean when we talk about membership. You've kind of officially crossed that line. And in the case of family, it's a perfect example because that's often marked by a covenant commitment, either marriage or adoption. Those are the ways in which people are joined as full members of a family. You either marry in or you're adopted in. And so these covenant commitments define this new officially designated relationship of membership. Now what membership is not, let me just clear this up from the start, two things it's not. First of all, it's not I pay my dues so you do what I want. That's what membership means in some, some contexts. If you're a member at a, you know, at a, at a, at a, at a golf resort or if you're a member at, at, any number, at any number of public or social institutions, you pay your dues and then they do what you, have, what you want or what, the, what you need, those sorts of things. They provide you services. It's not quite how it works in our case. It's not just, hey, I come to church and I give, so I should have the type of music that I like. That's not how membership works. And on the other side, it is not... You, now, we, it's not us saying to the church, you own my life, now I'll do whatever you want. That's not membership. And it, it, all of us have either been a part of or known friends who've been a part of churches who look more like cults in that sense. Where once you sign up, I know everything about you and I get to own all of it. That's not how the church operates. There are a number, I remember when I was out doing ministry on the West Coast, there are a number of, you know, if you want to start your own religion, move to California. It's more than just a cliche, you know what I mean? So there's a lot of these cultish type movements. And we would often have people who come to the church and say, especially when we'd start talking about membership, and they would say, now what do you mean? Because here's what I've experienced in the past. Everything was fun until I said I wanted to be a part of the group. And then it got really creepy. We're not talking about the really creepy So this is neither I pay my dues so you do what I want, nor I've signed my life away so you tell me what you want me to do. That's not what we're talking about. Um, So we'll go on to define a little bit more, but let's just get those off the table. Another thing to think about under this heading of opening thoughts is whatever we say about membership, we have to remember that the church is a place and we are a people where everyone is welcome. It does not matter who you are, what you've done, or what you're doing, you are welcome in the church. So whatever we say about membership, we can't say or talk or plan or organize this in such a way that a person who's not a member or who doesn't look the right way or wear the right clothes or say the right words, oh, you can't come here. No, that's, that's not how this works. So I believe in the value of membership, as I will try to make clear by the end of our time together, but I also think we must always keep in mind that even as we discuss membership, which in a lot of ways is more oriented to this whole, how do we build one another up? We still as a community are called to witness, and we do that by welcoming everyone. Nonetheless, most churches practice some form of official membership. Why? That's the question I want to tackle first. So what I want to do for the remainder of at least my portion of talking is uh, walk through three questions. The first one is, is church membership a good idea? I'm going to probably talk a little bit more on that one, but even then, I don't feel the need to be super technical or wordy. I'm just going to present to you what I think are the three best arguments for having official membership, and then we'll move on. You can ask me questions at the end. The second question that I want to then ask is, how does membership work at Christ Church? And I've put more information on your handout than I'm going to talk through. I'm not going to talk through all of it in detail. 
um, but this is straight out of some of the membership documents that you have received if you've gone through the membership course, or you will if you decide to go on to do it, just giving you an overview of what it means here. And then lastly, I just want to once more tackle the question, what is the next step for you? We may actually put the Q&A in between the previous section and that one, so we can close with that. So, is church membership a good idea? I want to give you three arguments, and I, I filled in most of your blanks today because if you've been here with me this long, then you're, you're paying attention. You're, you're, you're locked in enough. So if you need to write the blanks to stay connected, you can write them in your own font above the filled in underline words. But I believe in this section there are some that are actually not in there because I want you to hear me, if you hear nothing else from tonight's, I want you to hear me giving you what I think are three pretty good reasons why we as churches should practice membership. Uh, They are that, I'll I'll tell them all and then I'll go through each of them um, one at a time. My arguments would be that membership is logically demanded. Second, that membership is biblically sound. I'll go back over these. And third, that membership is culturally appropriate. So first of all, that membership is logically demanded. I think when you think about what it is we're doing, if you're asking how can we best organize this, you just will arrive at membership. Secondly, I think that it is biblically sound. Notice that I didn't say biblically demanded. If a person said to me, we don't see the word membership in the Bible, so we don't practice it, I would say that is absolutely within your Christian freedom to do so. I think it's the wisest way to organize a church, but this is not a right-wrong issue. This is a wisdom issue. I do, however, think that membership is entirely biblically sound, which means it aligns with what Scripture teaches. And then lastly, I think membership is culturally appropriate. Given the conditions of the church in our time, I think it is particularly relevant and a good idea. So let me unpack each of these. First of all, membership is um, logically demanded. If you think about life in general, I would imagine most of us would agree with this statement that the things the church should be and do demand strong commitment. I mean, if you think about, again, life in general, when we give ourselves to difficult things, we typically create bonds that tighten our relationship with one another. So this is why marriage is a legal thing. This is why employment is often based on a contract. Because an employer is making a commitment to you and you're making a commitment to an employer. Even if it's a contract that can be broken, it's not one that can be broken without consequence. So if you sign a contract for a year and then let's say they don't like you six months into it, well, technically they can let you go, but they have to provide for you in such a way that is stipulated by the contract. So we make official designations about certain commitments in our lives. And when you look at the things that the church should be and do, I think it's fairly easy to see these things demand strong commitment. And I think about this both in terms of mission as well as our own growth and spiritual maturity. With mission, I mean, have you ever tried to, you know, maybe in your communities, in your neighborhood, have you ever tried to do uh, you know, some event or initiative where, you know, this Christmas in the neighborhood, we're going to gather resources and provide a certain amount of food for those who don't have any? Sometimes it works, but what you get a lot of times is people saying, oh yeah, I'm going to click yes on the Facebook invite. I'm all into that. And then you know if you have 20 people sign up, you can expect probably about 8 to 12 of them to follow through. Because it's not an official commitment, it's just sort of a looser thing. And so when we think about the mission that God has entrusted to us, we need to know if we can count on each other. 
And again, I don't mean sign your life away, but I mean if you say, I'm going to serve in the children's ministry for the next six months. If something crazy happens, obviously it's no big deal. But when you say that, you're saying, generally speaking, I can be relied upon to do this. And not just, though, with the task piece of this. I think that this may be even more so true with the, um, with the growth piece of this. So um, I heard, I was, I was listening to, I was in a meeting with, uh, I, I occasionally get to sit in these meetings where I'm surrounded by everyone in the room being wiser than me. And I always love those opportunities. And I try to, I talk a lot sometimes in meetings. My wife always tells me after a meeting, did you talk too much? So I just try to shut up, actually, and listen to their wisdom. And I heard two of these guys talking. One of them was Randy Garris. He's a longtime pastor at College Heights Christian Church, one of our, uh, one of our uh, uh, sister churches here in the area, and now works at Ozark as kind of a campus pastor of sorts. And um, he, was, he was saying to another, another guy that if, talking about this concept, he was saying, if you and I aren't close to one another, for me to annoy you and you to annoy me, then we can't grow. And I think, generally speaking, that's true. And I think part of the church's role in our own sanctification and our own spiritual growth is to train us to love. This is why I think it's a good thing that the church is filled with people you maybe don't like. Because the whole point is that you get outside of yourself and you become capable of loving even people that you don't like. But if we create casual connections and casual relationships only, if we say, hey, if you want it, come get it, but if you don't, it's all good then I think the likelihood of, I'll put it this way, me becoming more like Jesus is fairly low. But if I'm asked to make a commitment to something, a commitment to a particular group of people, then I think the likelihood that I'm going to grow because of my interactions with those people rises exponentially because I've promised to stick with them even if they're driving me crazy. So again, I'm not even saying in this verse that says this and that builds this up. I'm just saying if you look at what it is we're trying to accomplish together, what makes sense to me is to have some form of strong established commitment. And to put the same thing another way, I've put on here, people stay more committed to things when they make their commitments official. Again, marriage being a great example of that. Work being another good example of that. Schooling being another example of that. We at the college ask students to pay a certain amount of their school bill up front so that we know the likelihood increases that they'll continue throughout the semester because they've invested into it. You know what I mean? And so in multiple avenues of our life, we kind of recognize that if it's a venture, if it's a task, if it's an experience that I'm going to be tempted to give up on, I probably should make a really official commitment ahead of time so that I stick through it to the end. And given that the church is about eternal things, the kind of things that aren't just, eh, if you want to, it makes sense to me that we look at one another and say, hey, let's commit to this. Okay, Let, let's, let's go ahead and make a covenant with one another on this. Not the same extent as a marriage covenant. You going to another church is nowhere near you leaving your husband or wife. That's not at all what I'm saying. But we make an official, if, you know, level two, an official relationship to one another. I think it makes sense. Secondly, I think it's biblically sound. God-related uh, God relationships in the Bible are always covenantal. And this is, there's even some difference between a contract and a covenant. Whereas a contract is, they're similar, so they overlap, but a contract is you do this, I do this, and all will be well. And it's more of a transactional type of relationship. In a covenant relationship, there is an element of I'm promising, here, here's, the, actually, here's the difference, I think. In a contract relationship, it's you do this, and then they say you do this, and then you say we'll be well. 
I think a covenant is more, I promise to do this. I promise to do this. And if we keep this, all will be well. Do you see the difference? So I know it's subtle. And ultimately, like I said, the two are similar. But biblically speaking, all of God's relationships are covenantal. He covenanted himself to Israel. That's why we talk about this concept so much of the church being the fulfillment of Israel. Because if the church isn't the fulfillment of Israel, then God still has to find a way to keep those promises, right? He made promises, and he's a God who keeps his promises. That will be a major theme of our, of our sermon series on Romans this next spring. And we're going to do a Wednesday night class on it as well, because I think that is the fundamental point of Romans. God keeps his promises. So his relationships are covenantal. He also asks for covenantal relationships in return. In the Old Testament, this is why the people of God had to be circumcised. It wasn't just that God had a strange affinity for foreskins. It's that this was a way in which they could say, I'm all in, right? And for the mamas, they themselves don't partake, but their boys, they have them, have them circumcised at a very young age. And it's instituted in Genesis 17. The, coven, the covenant had a sign that was circumcision that was an official way of God's people, official way for God's people to say, we're part of this. Now, in the New Testament, circumcision is no longer the issue, no longer in play, because this is now a multinational community of God, a multinational people of God. But instead, what we have in the New Testament is what? Baptism. Where you go publicly up in front of people, and you make a confession of faith, and you take part in this kind of a strange ritual. And part of the whole point of this is you going public and saying, I'm in. I'm a part of this. So God's covenantal with us. He expects us to be covenantal with one another, and he, or, or covenantal with him, and he also expects us to be covenantal with one another. Let me give you my second sub-point. The practice of church discipline assumes more than casual belonging. Now, church discipline is a fascinating topic in its own right. It's the one thing that I thought, well, there's actually two things that would have been fun to talk about in this class, but both of them probably would just take more time than we had, and that would be the question of women in ministry and also the question of church discipline. So I can't go in depth into either of these, but I put those two texts on there because I encourage you to read them later on. And what I want you to notice about these, now let me say, church discipline can be abused and has been abused as often as anything in the church's life. So there are more ways to do this poorly than there are ways to do this right. And I can tell you that in my eight years of ministry at Real Life, I wrote one church discipline letter saying, unfortunately, I have to tell you that you're no longer welcome at our church. It was the last day I ever, I ever went to work there. It wasn't exactly how I wanted to end, but it had to be done. And I only wrote the letter because the, this person wouldn't return our phone calls or meet with us anymore. We had gone through a long process with very public sinning. Not just like, hey, I don't like the way you're doing that over there. No, like very public. Everybody would look at this and say, not okay. And we went through a long process of multiple attempts at restoration. And in the end, we had to acknowledge, not only are you not willing to repent of what is obviously against all of Scripture, but you're actually a violently disruptive presence when you come to the church. So very rarely is it appropriate to practice excommunication, but it is biblical. You can read it about it in Matthew 18, you can read it about it in 1 Corinthians 5. And in both cases, what you'll notice is that clear lines are being marked between those who are inside and those who are outside. Now, even church discipline is designed with the goal of a person coming back in, but it is also a representation of God's judgment upon them for going way too far and not being willing to repent of what the Bible clearly teaches is sinful. So um, the, the very presence of this reality in Scripture tells us that this is more than just a casual type of belonging. And at a deeper level, 
All membership does is make official what is actually the case. We actually are different. So membership just officially recognizes that reality. Do you remember how in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say to them, and the situation is some Christians are taking other Christians to court, a pagan court, instead of handling some of their differences on their own. And remember what Paul says to them, are you not acting like mere human beings? And I sometimes wonder, what did they think when they got this letter? Like what am I, I mean, I I think I'm a human being, you know? And Paul's whole point is precisely what you were saying earlier. That you are the people on whom the end of ages have come. You're people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. You actually are fundamentally different. When you go through the waters of baptism and and when you put your faith in Jesus and when you surrender to him and when you look up to the heavens and say, God, I repent of my sin and Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. You actually, in 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 yourself, in your soul, you actually have a new life flowing through your veins. There is something different about you. And therefore, membership just becomes a way of officially recognizing what is actually the case. So I would never argue that membership in an official capacity is biblically demanded. But I will, at least so far as I can tell, always argue that it is entirely biblically sound. And thirdly, I think it's culturally appropriate. What I mean by that is, in our day in particular, I think membership becomes critical. And I'll give you two reasons, and they're both fancy words that end with ism. First one's individualism. Second one is consumerism. Here's what I mean. First of all, people have always been selfish, so it's not like we invented this. But our individualism is kryptonite for the church. I had a discussion today in my Philippians course about, um, I asked the students, what are some songs from your generation? What are some of the most me-centered songs from your generation? And they mentioned like, all right off the top, six or seven of them. Now, I have... I, I confess, whether this is good or bad, I don't know. I had no idea what any of these songs were. (laughs) But they were telling me the lyrics, and it was almost laughable. And, uh, I mean, I don't care how old you are. If you paid any attention to me, you go back to the 60s, 1965, I'm free to do what I want any old time, Rolling Stones. I think it's 69 when Sinatra's My Way comes out. You know what I mean? You continue on. If that's not your genre, you got, what was the My Prerogative by Bobby Brown? That's his song. You have, um, what are some of the others? Well, a bunch of people have redone uh, Sinatra's My Way. Bon Jovi's It's My Life. It's Now or Never. I'm just going to do what I want while I'm alive, or I'm going to live while I'm alive. Usher's My Way. And then um, some of the more hilariously titled ones, Beyonce had a song, Me, Myself, and I. And uh, Toby Keith, here's the country song. I want to talk about Me, yeah, so you have all these songs which are clearly self-centered, which I think show us, and there have been, you can Google this and find some interesting research, not just on the obvious songs, but that even though you can find me-centered songs throughout the generations, in the past 20 to 25 years, if you look at, you know, databases that catalog all of the lyrics of the top songs in our country, you have a marked decrease in songs that use words like we or us and a marked increase in songs that say I and me. You also have a marked decrease in themes like cooperation and doing things together and getting along, and a marked increase in songs that are more about anger and violence and and me fulfilling my own selfish desires no matter what it does to somebody else. So it's not that we invented selfishness, but there is a sense in which our individualism, our unique brand of individualism, is kryptonite for the church today. We live in a society that from top to bottom tells us, you climb up the ladder. You can actually, you go to here, I got one website for you. I want you later on tonight or next, later this week to go look up IDeserveToBeHappy.com. It's a real website. And this will tell you all you need to know about our culture. 
And the fact is, like most of the people I know, um, some inside the church, but mostly outside the church, would find absolutely nothing wrong and actually quite a bit to celebrate about, the, about this idea of, you know, I deserve to be happy. So anyway, no need to go on further because I think this is fairly the world in which we live, but our, our sense of individualism, I mean, think about how much this works against us gathering together with people who are different from us, worshiping a God that we can't physically see, devoting our lives to building up each other, even when we don't like one another, and working together in order to achieve our mission in the world. If you think life is about you, you're just not going to do that. And so in that sense, I think membership becomes wise because it's kryptonite for the kryptonite. Similarly, same point put in a different way, our world of consumerism makes membership all the more valuable. And what I mean by consumerism is the fact that us having the opportunity to choose between whatever options we want as a fundamental facet of our cultural experience works against us going to church. The very fact that you could say, I'm church shopping and not be joking, I think actually says something about where we are. Because this is how we approach the world. If I don't like the burgers at Five Guys, then I'm not, I, no, there's no pressure on me to keep going to Five Guys. There's 17 other burger spots in town that I can go to. If I don't like this shampoo, there's a thousand other opportunities for me. If I don't like the scent of this deodorant, then I can go find another scent or another form or another brand. I mean, any, any of the products that we purchase, we have a near endless supply of options. And we need to think about the way that that trains our mind to approach the world. There's just no way in which this doesn't have an impact on us. And all of us, even the most sanctified among us, will have to some degree been impacted by the fact that in much of our lives, we just get to choose what we want, and it's not a big deal. And it's actually, in many cases, not a big deal. I don't care what shampoo you use. If you want to change from Pert Plus to Garnier, go for it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just like cheap stuff that's two-in-one, so I don't have to do the double. Anyway, another story of another day. My point is that membership is, and again, to summarize my three points, membership is logically demanded by virtue of what it is that we're trying to accomplish. It is biblically sound. There's plenty of themes and texts and meat within scripture that I think points in this direction. And then thirdly, culturally appropriate. Even if nobody else had done membership, which is not the case, by the way, it's been around since the end of the first, early second century. Even... If nobody else had done this, I think we, if we were discerning the cultural moment we're a part of, would say, you know what, we probably ought to find some way to go ahead and make commitment to the church official, just for the sake of us accomplishing what it is we need to accomplish in our own lives and in the lives of others as well. So those are my three reasons um, for why I think membership is a good idea. Let me go ahead, if I could, and stay locked in content-wise, and we walk through this next portion of it, and then I'll pause, and we'll do a decent bit of Q&A um, about any of the things we've talked about tonight, or things we've discussed in the past, or things we haven't talked about when it comes to the church. How does membership work at Christ Church? What I've done here is I've taken some of the material from the documents that, how many of you are our official members here at Christ Church for Nogo? Okay, so most of you. So for those of you who are, this, you've seen this before. For the, let me just remind you of what you committed to. For those of you who aren't, this is a, a taste of what you'll be learning about if you go ahead and choose to take part in some of those membership classes. It's divided into beliefs, values, and expectations. First of all, we have 10 cor cornerstone beliefs. And I actually like that description, cornerstone beliefs. I didn't make it up, so I can say it's as awesome as I want to, and I'm not being arrogant because it's somebody else's idea. I've actually never seen that before. 
You see core beliefs, you see essential beliefs. I like cornerstone beliefs because what we're saying is this is the stone you got to put in place first and we can build around it in order to have a solid foundation. But if you don't lock this one in first, then we're not going to have straight lines and the building's going to fall. So our cornerstone beliefs here are that we believe in God. No surprises there, I hope. We believe in Jesus the Christ. We believe Jesus Christ is the authority of the church. We believe Jesus will return for his church. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the scriptures. We believe Satan is real. We believe man is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that salvation is complete and enduring. And we believe God calls us to be good managers of what belongs to him. Now, of course, in the courses, you go into more depth with those things. But what we're saying is, if you're going to become a member here, what you're saying is, yeah, I believe those things. I may differ on some interpretations of other things, but I believe those things. I have no problem signing on and saying, yes, those are my cornerstone beliefs as well. But of course, it's not just enough for us to agree with one another on some important, though they may be, points of doctrine. We also move forward and we discuss in this our core values. Here at Christ Church, we have three core values and then some other principles that will tell you what to expect as part of our life here together. The core values here are, first of all, embrace the gospel, which is a greater truth. Again, we are, or, we are rooted in the gospel. We're never going to let go of that. Secondly, how we put this next piece is engage our God, a greater fulfillment. And what that means is to be taken up into this mission that he's, leaving. He, he's, he's living in and through us. And then lastly, we experience the kingdom. We experience a greater life together. So you have that community piece. So we've said that those are our three core values. Those are really what make us who we are. And building on that, what you can expect from Christ Church of Oronogo is, first of all, that the message, methods must change with culture, but the message always stays the same. We're never going to stop preaching Jesus here. And we're never going to stop teaching about Jesus from the scriptures. There may be a difference in the methods. This church may look different in 10 or 15 or 20 years. I know I left uh, Joplin in 2005, so 10 years ago, came back in 2013. This room was not here. <laughs> we were down in what now is the kids' club room. That's the room I remember worshiping in when I was part of this church when I was younger. So things are going to change. You're going to have different people up here preaching, teaching, different people up here leading music. Who knows what the next phase of worship style is going to be. Maybe we'll have some banjos up there. We'll see. Things are going to change on the surface, but there's always going to be a focus on who the Lord is. Uh, another thing that you can expect from Christ Church is that we believe God loves all people. You don't have to look like me, think like me, dress like me, talk like me, drink like me. You just, you, God loves all people. And we want to be a community that maintains that truth as a driving force. And then lastly, we think the church must get larger and smaller. We always want this place to grow, and we won't apologize for that. But we also always want to be pushing you into deeper forms of authentic community. And we're never going to apologize for that either. So we pursue those things around here. And then lastly, and this is kind of the main part in terms of you, if you haven't become a member, considering whether or not you might, and you, if you have become a member, the things that you've committed to are the expectations. You actually, if you go through this process, will sign a document. You will put your name on a line. And if my youth minister, who's now part of this church, Jason Friends, taught us anything in high school, it was that if a man ain't got his word, he ain't got nothing. And it's certainly true of women as well. He may have said that a thousand times my junior year in high school. And he beat it into our heads. If you put your name on the dotted line, you better keep what it is that you've said. So anyway, you, you sign your name if you want to do these things. Here's what they are. I'll actually read all through all of these because I, I certainly want them to be made clear. First of all, you're saying, I will protect the unity of my church. I'm not going to be a divisive person. 
How do you do this? By acting in love toward other members, by refusing to gossip, and by submitting to the leaders of the church. Secondly, you say, I will share the responsibility of my church. How will you do this? By praying for the growth of the church, by inviting the unchurched to attend, and by warmly welcoming those who visit. Let's pause to note that we have all committed ourselves to precisely those things. Number three, I will serve the ministry of my church. How? By discovering my gifts and talents, by being equipped to serve in my church, community, and world, and by developing a servant's heart. You right now are doing the middle of those things. You are serving your church by being equipped to serve in your church by virtue of taking this course and having a greater understanding of what the church is. So well done. And then lastly, number four, I will support the testimony of my church by, by attending faithfully, by living a godly life, and finally, by giving regularly. We don't apologize for there being a financial component to this. So the four big picture expectations are that you will protect the unity of your church, that you will share the responsibility of your church, that you will serve in the ministry of your church, and that you will support the testimony of your church. So let me push pause right now, and um, I'll come back to the end portion for our very end. I'll say those things, and then I'll say one final prayer over us, and we'll uh, disperse for the last time this semester. But we have been able to save some time, let me make sure that clock I'm looking at is right, it is, to save some time for questions you may have. Let me start by asking, uh, are there any questions about membership or the things that we've covered today? Yes. Interesting. That's a fascinating question. What she's saying is because of the society in which we live today, will there ever be a legal reason for church membership? I do not know the answer to that question. Um, I know that it's one of the things that's interesting about our time is nobody really knows what the future holds. And I'm, I'm, my skepticism towards a future predictor grows with their certainty. You know what I mean? So one of the things I love about the leaders of the communities I'm a part of, both Mark Christian here at Christ Church and, and our president, Matt Proctor at, at Ozark at the college, both of them have this ability to say, we don't know what the future holds. We're certainly not going to panic because God is sovereign, but we are going to plan for whatever may come and change. So I actually do not know how to answer that question, but it is an interesting one and one that somebody around here probably ought to figure out. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I figured you were thinking. And it may be that, I mean, I could see theoretically a legal situation in which a church could say, under the protection of law, here are the things that we promise to do under, this, under these conditions. You know, that we'll say perform a marriage for people who are part of our community, but people who are part of our community know that here's what we believe and here's what we will and won't do. So they sign up for membership knowing that this is how we approach things. Therefore, there is no surprise or injustice in us ultimately saying uh, no to certain, certain types of situations. So yeah, those are, those, are, those are fascinating and challenging things to think about, you know, life in exile. And the, the, uh, the relationship between the church and the world will become a little bit more complex in some ways. So we'll see. We'll see. And, and we'll be pl- certainly praying and planning for those things as they continue to develop. Yeah. Other questions about membership or things that we've discussed this evening? Yes. I might just say one thing. I sort of looked at other churches also. Mm-hmm. But when I read that CCO stood for it, it was all of the things that I stood for. Yeah. All the way down. 
Yeah, so she's saying that when she read the things that CCO stood for, those are the things that she stood for. And one of the things I think that you should look for, and let's say, let's say you decide that Christ Church is no longer going to be your church home for whatever reason, or let's say that it's not currently your church home. I know some of you are coming from other churches, and I think that's great. Um, or let's say you move away, in which case Christ Church cannot continue to be your church home. One of the things that you should look for in, in a church's membership documents is, is that they are unspecific enough. And what I mean by that is the more specific you get about all the details, the more we're probably trying to, you know, draw a capital letter where God has drawn a lowercase letter. And what I like about ours is it's kind of hard to argue with them, biblically speaking. We're not asking for anything crazy, you know what I mean, um, in these documents. And I find rest in that. Yeah, I look at these and I say, well, by virtue of my own reading of the scriptures, it's just it's not complicated for me to sign these things. This is what I would expect to be asked of me, you know, in, in this situation. So good. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a resonating that we want to happen at those levels. Good. Other questions about membership? Yes. Yeah. You know what? I'm not going to tell you you need to, so I'll leave that to Scott Insminger. You in here, Scott? Um, no, I don't know if you heard her, but she, you started attending this church in the 60s. Yeah, I don't know if anyone would have a right to tell you you're not a member. <laughs> um, so I would imagine that you would get... Um, grandfathered or grandmothered in this case, grandmothered in. So yeah, let's talk to Scott and see if we can get your uh, get your John Hancock on a on a piece of paper. So yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good pedigree, pretty good pedigree. Yeah, good. Any other questions on this point? Yes. That is a good question, and I actually don't know the answer to it. I actually meant to grab Scott and tell him to come in here towards the end, although he may be... T- he actually is teaching a membership class right now. That's where he is. I don't know on that one. I think that they, that um, the official... And Brad, by the way, if you're back there, if you know any answers to these, feel free to flag me down and holler it. I think that, that they would rather us just go ahead and wait till the next core, next time the classes are offered and then take them and go through the process. Because there is a... Um, relational component to this, especially as the church. If, if, I were, if I were calling the shots, I would say there's no pressure on you, you know, anybody to become a member. It's not like you're a second-rate pers- part of what's going on. All right, I'll, I'll give you a full confession. Hold on. Just kidding, I don't need to turn it off. I've actually not gone through the membership classes either. So I've signed off on all the employee documents, of course. But so it's not the like, you know, you have to do this in order to feel like you're part of the family. No way. You're totally part of the family, even if not going through this. But if I were calling the shots, I would say, I want you to come to the class, especially as we get bigger. I just want there to be as much personal interaction as we possibly can. And on this particular point, I would see value in, you know, going about it that way. So um, I don't know if that's the official line, though, um, but I would imagine it probably is. Yeah. Made you feel more complete going through it? Yeah, and some of that's personality. Some of us would, would, would rather go through the process. Others of us, actually, quite the opposite, would rather just give me the papers, let me read them, let me sign it, and we're good. You know what I mean? Yes. I just completed the class about a month ago, and I 
Okay, yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, we don't we though. Yeah, we're keeping the binder companies in business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. If that's not the draw, I don't know what is. Yeah, Scott's a blast. He's fun. And once you go through one class with him, you have the right to make fun of him, which is even more fun. So, yeah, no, I, I, uh, he was actually my, my first boss when I was an intern here years ago. So, um, yeah, I think the world of him for sure. And um, I know for probably most of you who haven't, it's probably a logistics thing. You know what I mean? Time in which it's offered and those sorts of things. So um, I, we've been dialoguing. I don't actually know when the next one is. So I wanted to give you that date. Instead, what I have are the contact names for you if you guys are interested. And I'll give you those at the end. I think they're on your sheet. But yes. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. I have two questions. Sure. Um, first, if you grow up in Yeah, I would, again, if I were calling the shots, have you go through the course? Um, not as any, nowhere even near a salvation or even a faithfulness issue, but, you know, kind of a, kind of a why not, kind of a let's go for it, um, is what I would say. You know, go through the class, just make it official. And there's a sense in which um, it's, it, there's this not tension between the two points, but on the one hand, this is precisely what we want children to grow up in home, Christian homes and continue to follow the Lord. On the other hand, you have that idea that God has no grandchildren, that we each make the faith our own. And again, not that this is the making the faith your own, but there's a sense in which it's, I'm going to go ahead and make my commitment to this particular local congregation um, as, a, as an expression of the larger body of Christ. As soon as you're baptized, you are a member of the body of Christ. No, I haven't said that yet, so let me make sure, you know, of course, that that's clear. Um, I shouldn't assume that as soon as you are baptized, as soon as you come to faith, you are a member of the body of Christ, the, the church universal, no question. So all of y'all, who all of y'all, I've been in Missouri, haven't I? All of y'all, although I think like technically y'all is a valuable word. Find a way to say you in the English language in the plural to me that is clearer than y'all, and I'll use that instead, but you can't find one. What am I saying? All of y'all who are following Jesus as, you know, as baptized believers are members in God's church. But of course, we're discussing membership in a particular local congregation. Yeah. Yes, you had another one. Yes. Okay, so growing up, it was my understanding that the church that you get baptized in, that that's kind of an automatic membership thing. Yeah. Does CCO have that view? I don't think so. But I don't know. I'm having to say that to a lot of these questions. Um, the uh, what? If you take the baptism classes, it counts as a membership type thing. That would make sense to me. But the, the interesting thing about membership is it probably has grown over time. For instance, I remember as an intern helping develop some of the curriculum that is 
is some of what's still being used today. So it's the, you know, the nature of membership in this and in other churches. And for instance, when I was at Real Life, the church in California, we were, uh, when I got there, we were five years old as a church and I was there for eight years. So when I left, we were 13 years old and probably right about the middle of my time there. So as we were approaching a decade is when we decided we should probably have membership. We didn't have official membership at that point. I mean, we were a church plant. And a lot of these things take time, even the, the appointing of elders and such things. So we had all these interesting, well, like people saying, I've been here since day one. I literally was there unloading the truck when you first had church in the theater. How can you say I'm not a member? And it's, you know, I know that's not the spirit of what you're asking. It's not that we're saying you're not. It's just saying, let's go ahead and make this official. Um, so even with baptism, I think, you know, we baptize a lot of our kids you know, over here and we get to watch it and it's wonderful and we celebrate it and I can't wait for the day when I baptize my own children, you know, probably in those waters right there, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, but um, I, I, I think still when a person comes of age on their own, they would go ahead and make this decision to be part of the local church. Yeah. A long way of sort of answering your question, huh? Yes. Yeah, I didn't happen to see that, but I'm not surprised. You take a church like Southeast, if they counted their membership roles, you'd be more than the state of Kentucky. You know what I mean? So yeah, I don't know if you heard her, but one of our larger churches in our movement wiped their membership roles and asked everybody to re-sign, to recommit. And that's probably not a bad idea every now and then. Again, it's not a weird passive-aggressive move. If, a move. It's a way of saying, it's not like most of us de-memberize. Is that a word? Unmemberize? I don't know. Remember is taken, so we can't use that. You know, whenever we left real life, we didn't, like, take our name off the membership list. So since we don't practice demembering, it, this is going to start sounding like, I don't even know where we're going with this. Um, since we don't practice that, I think it would probably make sense even to do that every now and then, every 15, 20 years or so. One more on this, and then let me go ahead and, add, and, and, and if you have other questions on membership, fine too, but let me go ahead and open this up to any questions about the church. So final shot, at least in this particular context, we're going to do this for about uh, 10 more minutes or so, and then I'll wrap up and get us out of here. So if you have other questions, there are some that are coming on the phone. Okay, he's going to send those to me and I'll take a look at them. Yes. Yep. Uh, and that with, with a contract, that's, that's more of uh, in, being in business. It's between two different um, situations. Mm-hmm. And typically a lawyer that can enforce that. Hmm, an arbitrator of sorts. Yeah. And with a covenant, it's between two, and the arbitrator is God. Hmm. So God is, God is the center of, of that. That's good. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Yeah, it's discussing further on covenant and contract. You have a strong voice, so I think this thing picked it up, so I don't repeat. But yeah, good, good points on that for sure. All right, let me look to this. Um, I think I've got when yet yeah, today, there's a start. So I might remind people at the end about Advent services. Okay, I'll remind you about Advent services here in a moment. I understand we're called to love all people. I really struggle with loving people like the cowards that committed the attacks in Paris, especially those that do it in the name and honor of their God. Thoughts? Um, I, I'm with you. That's, that's my first thought. I struggle too. Um, it's hard. And coward is the appropriate word for people who anonymously take the lives of innocent, innocent people. There's nothing okay about this. There's nothing admirable about this. There's nothing excusable about this. And in particular, when it's used, when it's done in the name of God. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was reading something recently and somebody was really mad about a person swearing. And um, I'm not trying to tell you to go swear, but I think God's 
going to be a lot more upset about people using his name in certain ways than about certain other four-letter words that may come out of people's mouths. So everything about these situations, the violence, the abuse of God's name, uh, the cowardice is repulsive and disgusting. And yet Jesus tells us, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. The things that ISIS does in Paris and other places, and not just ISIS, but other movements as well, places like Kenya and different ones, um, they weren't all that different than some of what the Romans would do in certain situations. Um, You can go back and read some of the, read, read Josephus, if you are bold, about the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem and the things that they did to uh, to those who rebelled against them. One time there was a Roman general that crucified 3,000 Jews in one day. That's a lot of people. Uh, so this is the world in which Jesus said, love your enemies, I think is what I want to start with. And when he said, love your enemies, it's not like Jerry Garcia, peace sign, big beard, hey, let's all get along kind of stuff. It's nitty gritty. It's ugly. It's nasty. It's love people who do things that are repulsive and inexcusable. And I don't pretend that it's not a struggle, so I don't know who texted that in, but I feel you. I'm with you. Um, The only way I can make sense of it is to recognize that while not the same, I have done enough in my life to cause pain to other people. Not the same. There's no need to lie and pretend that it's just as bad. But I have done enough in my life that it would be right for God to look at me and be repulsed by me. Um, I have even sometimes, I think for the, I think I can say pretty much every time without knowing it, I have even used the name of God to probably build up my own ego, especially when I was younger, although I don't pretend to be perfect now. Um, one of the darkest personal seasons of my life was, um, late college or when I, right around the time I was getting married, I came to see that I had been following Jesus pretty faithfully for a while and yet I had not realized, really until I got married, how much even God had become a part of my own power trip. When I was a young man, I wanted to be great. And first I thought I'd be the great baseball player, and then I realized that wasn't going to happen, so I switched to basketball. And when I realized that wasn't going to happen, I thought, I'll just start a business and take over the world. When I calculated the unlikelihood that that was going to take place, I just wanted to be the best. And so since nothing else was available, I decided I would be the best at God. And I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but, um, and some of it was sincere, but some of it was repulsive. So again, I'm not trying to say that you or I are, are as bad as cowards who cause the innocent deaths of lots of people, but I believe that it's theologically true that it would be proper for God to be repulsed by me, and yet he embraces me. I have um, found myself often recently saying that it is being a dad that has taught me the most about God's love but not because of the love I have for my kids. Rather, because of the love I cannot imagine having for those who cause them harm. And if the scenario is parent, child, people responsible for the death of a child, then in the case of God, Jesus, and me, I'm over here. And yet he looks upon me with love. So he does not excuse my sin. He does not downplay my sin, nor yours. But he nevertheless reaches out in love, providing an opportunity to repentance. And if I don't take that opportunity toward repentance, to repent, then I'll meet the other side of his fierce love. And it won't be a happy day for me. And so in that sense, I think the two things that enable me to pray for attackers such as this person are 
an understanding of the gospel grace that has been offered to me and a recognition that God will right all wrongs. God will judge all evil. And I'm reminded of 1 Peter 2 where Jesus is being held up as an example. This is one of the most disturbing texts for us, and rightly so, because I think we don't have the moral capacity to grasp it a lot of times. He's describing a situation of a slave being unjustly beaten. And he says to this slave who's a Christian, uh, you suffer unjustly without fighting back. It doesn't mean just take a hit and take a hit and take a hit. Run if you can, but um, don't fight back. And he uses, Peter does in 1 Peter 2, Jesus is an example of this. And there's a phrase in there that I think is critical for understanding the difference between like a sort of a lame liberal type of pacifism and more of a gospel-centered enemy love. And the phrase is that Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And I think that's a critical component to this. That when we choose not to immediately do everything we can to destroy people who do evil, it's not because we're okay with evil or because we just want to be nice to them. No thanks. It's because we believe that God will judge and that we can trust him to judge properly. And what else we do with that, we'll we'll be figuring out together as we sit under the authority of Scripture. Um, But those are, at least off the top of my head, some attempts to, to try to articulate how I wrestle with such things. And the gospel demands to love our enemies. Whatever you say, whoever you are that put that, I applaud you for asking a difficult question. Whoever you are and all the rest of us in the room as well, whatever we say about these things, we are a people who sit under the authority of Jesus, which means our only option with regard to our enemies is to love them. And I know that's difficult, and it is something that we'll continue to struggle with, but I think that's what it means to be the church, to sit under the authority of Jesus and to do what he said. Um, now, what that means in practice, of course, would require a lot more discussion and teaching and um, complexity even regarding our different stations and callings in life. But that's where we start as followers of Jesus anyway. Sorry, I'm, as I, when I think out loud, sometimes I slow down and therefore talk too much. But uh, any, any other questions? Let's see if any others came in here. I don't think any others did. A couple more. We've got time for maybe uh, two or three more. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to speak sensitively here, um, but I have argued that the church is the fulfillment of Israel, and you're you're saying you have friends, and I do too, who think that that's I like your word poppycock. How do they come up with that? If I'm, I, I'm going to try to not, I'm going to try to not be overly mean or overly nice or funny at all. I think that the reason people think that is because they don't know how to read scripture. And I think there's, and I, that's a, it sounds so harsh and I do not mean it harsh, but a couple of examples of this, when it comes to, usually people believe such things because of how they read the prophets, the portions of scripture that are prophetic. And some of the problems in this are, first of all, when, you, people, when we fail to see the if in the prophecy. So, for instance, uh, Jonah comes to Nineveh and says, 40 days and Nineveh will be no more. That is the prophecy. 
and yet 40 days later, Nineveh still is. Why? Well, because there was an assumed if, if you don't repent. And they repented, and therefore God did not destroy Nineveh. Now, somebody, I guess, technically could say, well, God said 40 days, and Nineveh will be no more, but Nineveh was still around 40 days later, so actually the 40 meant 4,000. And when we get to the year 4,000, actually, which would be probably about 3,300, given the time in which this was prophesied, then we can expect this prophecy to be fulfilled. And we would look at that and say, that's kind of ridiculous, because all along, the nature of the prophecy was, if you repent, it's not going to happen. So, for instance, God might say to Israel, if you repent, I am going to restore your temple within a generation, and it will be everlasting where it is. And if the people don't repent, then God's not on the hook to fulfill the prophecy that was conditional upon their repentance. Does that make sense? So, that's a key part of it, is the, un- the, in, the in my mind, in my opinion, misunderstanding of the way biblical prophecy works, um, that is, I think, kind of probably at the heart of it. There are some other historical reasons. We've talked a little bit before in here about this idea of, you know, end times, rapture, millennium, those kinds of things. Ultimately, the historical reasons why these things are popular in America and nowhere else is because there was a preacher that came over from Britain named John Nelson Darby who taught that uh, Jesus was going to take away, he, he, basically on the, on the basis of some visions of a lady that was certifiably insane, created this doctrine of the rapture, that those of us who are saved will be taken away, and then there will be a seven-year tribulation, after which there will be a 1,000-year reign, and so on and so forth. So John Nelson Darby gets kicked out of England for teaching things that have never been taught before and aren't scriptural, so he comes to America. He has a movement. He has some converts, one of whom was a young man named C.I. Schofield, who would go on as a grown man to make the first ever study Bible. Some of you had Schofield study Bibles when you were growing up. So the Schofield study Bible is a bestseller because who doesn't want notes in the margins to tell me what's going on in the text? But what then happens is the notes in the margins become, in the mind of a lot of people, almost as authoritative as the text itself. And so you have an entire generation of American Christians that didn't have anywhere else, growing up believing that this is the way the world is going to end. And so then when somebody comes along and says, that's actually not what the text seems to be saying. It's more just how the notes explain it. It feels to people as if I've gotten, and some of you may be mad at me right now because of what I'm saying. I've gotten pushback in in pretty much every church I've ever been consistently involved with on some of these things. And I think it's because some of you, by virtue of what you were taught, believe that if you push back on modern day Israel, then you are denying the meaning of scripture. And I just don't think those two things are possible. So I don't know if I've said too much or too little. For the sake of time, I'll probably move on. But in the end, I think it's a misunderstanding of biblical prophecy. I remember I saw a book um, one time called Why Russia Will Attack Israel. And it was supposedly the book that clarified the meaning of Revelation. Well, that, I mean, that didn't happen. So um, nobody's going to write that book anymore. It'll be another one. Now why China will attack Israel? And then it will be why Canada will attack Israel? Probably not. <laughs> but you know what I mean? So I think we want to find where God is in our world. And one of the easy sloppy ways to do that is to find him geopolitically instead of just recognizing that where God is is where he's always been, glorifying his son while he sits on the throne and sovereignly rules the world, bringing it to its intended place of completion. So I'm sure I opened up some cans, but uh, let me take one, if, if I could, other qu- any other questions in the room about church things? All right. Well, let me finish with this. couple final thoughts for you, and then I'll let you get on out of here. What is next for you? What's the next step? 
the way I see it, you probably have three options that I'd like you to consider. Um, one of them would be to continue to do what you've been doing. I hope for most of you that means that you continue being here with us on Sundays as part of the church gathered. That you continue to do what you're doing as a member of the church there on the other six days of the week as the church scattered. So for many of you, I would imagine you don't need to do anything radically different as a result of our time together. You just need to keep on doing what you're doing with the knowledge that what you're doing is what God wants. So keep on keeping on. I think uh, we uh, sometimes underestimate the portions of scripture like Philippians 2, which says, continue to work out your salvation. What you're doing is what you should be doing, so don't stop. For others, it may be deciding to serve as a volunteer. We have, I believe, those volunteer forms on the table out there. Uh, a lot of you have already signed up for those. And again, none of this comes with any pressure or manipulation. If you're at a point in your life or if the Spirit is leading you to make a decision to step up and volunteer, then jump in. By all means, don't let anything stand in the way. If you're just not there for whatever reason because you're wrestling with some things or because you're just not in a life situation in which that's feasible, wait till it is. But jump in when it is. For some of you, though, I would imagine that the next step is for you to say, I'm going to play my part. And I don't know exactly what that is, but I'm going to jump in somewhere and then see where the Spirit leads me. And if, uh, if those forms have run out or if you've got to go tonight or if you forget, you can always contact Sue Crisson and talk to her about where you might get connected. Lastly, I think for some of you, uh, you ought to consider pursuing membership. Um, we're not going to have membership classes for the rest of this year because Scott's finishing the, this roundup right now. But look whenever the new year comes around at some of the announcements and see when those next classes are. And who knows, maybe I'll be sitting in there with you. Uh, we can become members together. And uh, also, if you're interested, contact Scott Insminger or Lindsey Wall. Now, I uh, want to say one last time that um, I am honored to be a part of Christ Church Warnogo. I'm honored to be a part of a community of men and women and of children as well, but right now I'm looking at men and women who are committed to following Jesus, or at least seeking him out enough to make a wise decision, and committing to follow Jesus together, and to serve him well, and to learn, and I want to tell you that it has been a joy and an honor for me to have the opportunity to come and teach you about what it means to be the church, and I have been praying, and will continue to pray that our words, and our discussions, and these thoughts have been beneficial to you, I see a lot of you on Sunday morning doing things that I could not do well. And I am so grateful to be part of the church, a place where each of us gets to do our part and trust that God is working in the lives of every other person in the room, enabling them to do their part so that we together can become a part of something that is indeed messy, but is at the same time beautiful. So if I could, I'd like to ask to pray for us one more time. And then after that, you'll be dismissed. Father God, thank you. Thank you for um, not only saving us as individual humans, as men and women made in your image, but uh, for saving us and as part of that liberation from sin, forming us into a group of people called the church. We all have rough edges that need to be sharpened away. We all have you know, wrong opinions that need to be righted. And so I pray that all of us would walk through this place and out from this place with a spirit of humility and grace and that you would grow us up to be wise and faithful. And for each of the persons in this room and the families that are represented, I pray, God, that you would be with them over the course of this holiday season and as they continue to seek out what it means to, uh, to worship and serve you well, I pray that you would give them wisdom. If that means pulling back and not doing as much, may they pull back and not do as much in the name of Jesus. 
And if that means stepping out and doing more, may they step out and do more in the name of Jesus. And if that just means hitting 2016 and continuing to do the same things they've been doing, I pray that they continue to do the same things that they've been doing in the name of Jesus. And certainly in this moment, we uh, are thankful and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We'll see you on Sunday. Oh, thank you. Hold on. Hold on. Information. You might remind people at the end about Advent service. I'm like, never mind. Uh, I'm just going to say I'm like Ron Burgundy, so I might as well say it. Starts, not that I know what that means. Starts 1129, that's November 29th at 5 p.m. in this room. So uh, this uh, next Sunday, I believe that is, right? Uh, yeah, this next, I'm acting like I don't know. Oh, no, it's two weeks from now. Trust me, I know and will be there because I think our Advent stuff is awesome. And here's a card for you. And if you don't like this, you can get a smaller card out there. And if you don't like that, then we can give it to you in digital form. So come to the Advent services. I'm serious. It is some of the most moving worship, and you'll get to hear testimonies from different people as well. So I look forward to seeing you guys there. And before then, I will see you on Sunday. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.